I'd like to ask at this time if you please open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 139. <clears throat> when I was 10 years old, one of the most popular children's films that came out that year was the adaptation of Roald Dahl's book, Matilda. Does anybody remember the movie Matilda? Everyone that's like my age pretty much remembers it. At one point in the movie, a rather plump little boy named Bruce Bogtrotter got into some trouble for stealing a piece of cake. And as a punishment, he was required to eat the entire beautiful, massive, chocolatey monstrosity of a cake that was placed in front of him. For me, that's the most memorable moment of the movie. It's one of those things that it's, it's, it's one thing to know that there is a big, beautiful cake. It's, it's one thing to know that it exists and the size and dimensions of it. It's one thing to have a concept of the sugariness of it and the, the delight that it would have in flavor. But it's an entirely different thing when portly little Bruce Bogtrotter realizes that he has to eat the entire thing by himself. The entire Bible teaches us in a variety of ways that God is big. But it's not enough just to know that there is a big God. We have to know how an infinite God like that relates to finite creatures like us. And in Psalm 139, the Holy Spirit is revealing to us through the pen of David exactly how three of God's divine and infinite and eternal attributes intersect with us specifically. Last week, we focused on the omniscience of God, meaning that God knows everything. Ultimately, the way that the omniscience of God intersects with our lives is seen clearly in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. He knows everything, and because he knows everything, he knows everything there is to know about you personally. David rightly recognized the personal nature of God's omniscience, and he correctly identified that God had exhaustively examined every last corner of David's heart and of David's mind, and that God has done the exact same thing for all of us. Last week, our focus was on the mind of God. This week, we are considering his presence, where is God, or maybe to put it more accurately, where is God not? This is what is known as the doctrine of God's omnipresence. He is everywhere, and he is everywhere at all times. Today we're going to see what God's word has to teach us about his omnipresence and how that specifically intersects with our confined spatial limitations. So please follow along in your own copy of scriptures as I read the portion of the text that we're going to consider this morning. Psalm 139, starting in verse 7. This is God's perfect holy word, which carries with it the exact same level of authority as if Jesus himself was standing here speaking to you right now. This is God's word. Verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Let's pray. Our God, we ask that today as we look to your word that you would help us to behold you, just as we have been doing through our singing and through the Lord's Supper. Lord, we pray that our eyes would be fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we would consider Christ. 
Help us, Father God, today to acknowledge and to recognize the omnipresence of your person and that we would understand how that relates to us specifically. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our outline today is very, very simple. Perhaps one of the most simple that I've ever given. Very simply this. Number one, God is omnipresent. (laughs) Number two, you are not. Number three, so what? Number one, God is omnipresent. It is a really easy thing to throw around a phrase like, God is everywhere. And it's easy to do that without even thinking about it. But in what sense is God everywhere? Does the Bible really teach that he is in all places at all times? This can get particularly confusing because the Bible speaks about God's presence in a number of different ways. So in order for me to get started on the right foot, let's first make a distinction between what theologians call God's omnipresence and what theologians call his manifest presence. In order to explain what I mean by God's manifest presence, let's look at the first two times the Bible uses this concept, this phrase, the presence of God. The first time we ever read about it explicitly is after the fall of Adam and Eve, and this is what happens when God comes into the garden after their sin, and it says that he is looking for them. Genesis 3, 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from what? From the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. If it is possible for us to hide from the presence of God, it must mean that the presence of God is not at all times in all places. In the very next chapter, after Cain killed Abel, it says that he, quote, went away from the presence of the Lord and settled into the land of Nod, east of Eden. As we have been making our way through the book of Exodus, in the shepherding notes and in the Bible reading plan, we have seen the presence of God spoken about nonstop, but it's spoken about in very specific locations. For example, the presence of God shows up in a burning bush, chapter 3. And the messenger of death, the spirit of God, shows up in his presence in a way that kills the firstborn of every household in chapter 13. He reveals himself as a pillar of cloud and as a pillar of fire throughout the book. And at the top of the mountain, in a mysterious way, he reveals his back to Moses when Moses says, show me your glory. So although it may appear last bombastic, the one that actually stands out to me the most, I think the most incredible, is when the Lord sets up a tent of meeting, and he says that he would consistently communicate with Moses there, and it says he would, quote, speak to him face to face. Remember what Moses said. He said, if your presence does not go with me, do not bring us up from here. And God told Moses, I will go with you. And then it says the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as man speaks with friend. The presence of God would come and settle in the tent of meeting. But it was just one tent, and only Moses was allowed to go in, and nobody else was permitted to come close. And it says that when he would come, they would know that his presence was there. I don't know how. I don't know what that looks like. Theologians often say that it's because the pillar of cloud probably came down around it. We don't really know for sure. But they would know he was there, and it would cause their hearts to fear and to worship. There are many other examples of God manifesting his presence throughout the Bible. The the tabernacle, the temple, the Ark of the Covenant. In the New Testament, we see, for example, the Lord show up in a time and space to Paul on the road to Damascus. Jesus himself saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Those are just some examples of God's manifest presence. Yes, God exists everywhere. However, the manifest presence of God is where God allows us to recognize and experience him. Sometimes little children get confused when they're playing hide and seek. I don't know if your kids have ever done this, where 
you're looking for them and they cover their eyes. And they think because you can't see, they can't see you that somehow you can't see them. Because they feel like they're in the darkness, so obviously nobody can find them. Well, obviously that's foolishness. It's important for us to see that just be, uh, understand just because we don't see God does not mean that he is not there or that he does not see you or know what is going on with you. The fact that God is everywhere and that he has the, the ability to manifest his presence in ways that we can see or experience in some way, that is called the manifest presence of God. He is everywhere, so at any given time he can manifest his presence wherever he wants. Look again at our text this morning. It begins with two rhetorical questions followed by two exclamations that give an answer. Verse 7, he asks the questions, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? Now the obvious and implied answer here is nowhere. I can't get away from you. There is nowhere that I could flee from the presence of God. Perhaps the most famous attempt to escape God's presence in all of Scripture is found in the reluctant prophet Jonah. In Jonah 1.3 we read, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And then if you keep reading, in the same verse, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them away from the presence of the Lord. That was his intention. That was his goal. That was his purpose. That was his idea. If I just get farther away from Jerusalem, farther away from the temple, then I'll be farther away from God. But that's not how it worked. Twice in that one verse, it tells us that his goal was to get to Nineveh, get as far away from Nineveh and as far, I'm sorry, not to get as far away from Nineveh, but to get as far away from God that he could. Like, people are like, yeah, okay, well, the direction is the opposite of Nineveh, so he's going away from that place. Well, yes, he is, but that's not his goal. His goal was to get away from God. But God is not confined to a particular nation or some kind of limitation or boundaries like we are. God was with Jonah in the boat. He was with Jonah in the storm. He was with Jonah in the sea. He was with Jonah in the fish. He was with Jonah in Nineveh. He was with Jonah when he went up under that hill to sulk. He was with him everywhere because God is everywhere. Part of what Jonah learned throughout the book is that God is everywhere. Normally, rhetorical questions are presented in the Bible without an answer. Oftentimes, the author will ask them, and Paul does this more, more than anybody else, but he'll just leave a question out there because the answer is so obvious that nobody could ever answer anything except the correct answer. Normally, these rhetorical questions are not answered. However, on some occasions in the Bible, rhetorical questions that have an obvious answer are still given an answer just to hammer home a point. David highlights the insane idea that somebody could run away from God by saying in verse 2, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which means the grave, you are there. David is grasping for the most extreme ends of the spectrum here. He's looking at the farthest places that the human soul can inhabit. Some people argue that this is speaking about the sky and the ground. I don't think so. I tend to think this is speaking of exactly what it sounds like, the afterlife, that David is saying that God's presence follows us beyond our earthly and physical existence into the next life. Regarding his, regardless, his point stands. There is no place to hide. Wherever you go, in this life or outside of it, God is already there. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 24 explains it like this. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? I fill it up. I'm in all of those places at all times. 
God was revealing to Jeremiah the exact same thing he was telling Jonah and the exact same thing he was revealing to David in Psalm 139. He is everywhere. In Isaiah chapter 66, God points out the insanity of the idea that his presence could somehow be confined into a tiny box or a building. He said, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you could build for me? In other words, do you think you could contain me? Obviously, the answer is no. You cannot contain me because my existence is so expansive that the heavens is my throne and the earth, this huge, massive planet that we live on, it's just a tiny footstool for my feet. Sometimes in the movie, you hear the line, you can run, but you can't hide. Most of the time, even when people say that in movies, it literally makes no sense. Maybe the inverse makes sense in some cases that you can hide, but you can't run. But in God's case, you cannot run and you cannot hide. You could extend the poem that David is saying and and fill in the blank with any place you can imagine. The far reaches of the universe, still God is there. Point number one, God is everywhere. Point number two, you are not. I think you know this. One of the funnest songs by Johnny Cash is the song, I've Been Everywhere. Jonathan, you like that song, correct? I've Been Everywhere. He, in that song, lists 92 different places that he has been, ranging from Winnemucca, Nevada, to Maine, and from Ottawa to Argentina. And just in case you're wondering, I did the quiz. I've been to 42 of those places. I don't know how many you've been to, but I love the idea of this song because it's fun. But let's think about how ridiculous this concept is for a second. Let me put it this way. Several years ago, I had a flight with an issue that was going from Istanbul in Turkey, and it was going to Belarus in Minsk, or Minsk in Belarus, rather, and I had to get rerouted through Kiev in now war-torn Ukraine. It wasn't war-torn at the moment. So I sat in an airport in the country of Ukraine for a couple of hours. Was I actually in Ukraine? Well, technically, yes, I was. Does it count that I was just sitting in the airport? I don't count that as being in Ukraine. So when I mark off the number of countries I've been to, I don't check the box for Ukraine because I never stepped foot out of international territory. Let's change the dynamic just a little bit. What if I went to Russia, the largest country in the world, and I did get out of the airport, and I, I went to Moscow, I looked around for a couple of hours, and then I get back into the airport, I get onto a plane, and I leave. Have I really been to Russia? Have I really seen Russia? If I've just looked around the several blocks that surround the airport, or maybe even took a taxi an hour in somewhere and looked around there just before coming back, have I really been to Russia? Well, of course, I've been there, but my existence, my presence in that place is limited to an incredibly confined boundary. My presence is limited to the size of my body. And yes, we do have varying sizes of body in this room, but they don't vary by very much. We are incredibly limited spatially. I remember distinctly having a conversation with my father back when I was in high school and telling him that I felt my hometown was a little too small for me and I didn't really think I would stay there. And Eventually, I would probably move to another place. And he was attempting to convince me that it's fine to stay in a small town and live there forever, which he's not wrong about. But I told him as an evidence that I was outgrowing the little city where I lived, that I had driven on every single street, and in fact, I had memorized the map of our town. I could tell him the name of every street in our entire community, and I think that at the time that was not an exaggeration. 
But even then, even then, in that little tiny town, there were a ton of things that I had never done, and there were a ton of places I had never gone, and even though the population was only about 8,000 people, there were many of them that I had never seen or had conversation with. Consider yourself. There are no people in this room who have ever, even for one second, been to a majority of places that exist in New York City. There is nobody who has ever been to every inch of Levittown. There is not even a single person in this room who has been to every square inch of this room. And before you disagree with me, look above you. There's a lot of space between you and the ceiling. (laughs) Consider the house where you live. Realistically speaking, there are places in your house that you have likely never touched. Maybe even places that you have never seen. You have gotten so used to the finite nature of your limitations that you don't even realize how spatially challenged you are. At all times, there are trillions of things happening just outside of your scope of vision and hearing that you will never even know occurred. From conversations to car accidents, it could happen one block away from your home while you are in your home, and you will go through the entirety of your life oblivious to the fact that those things ever happened because you are so isolated by your five senses that anchor you to your physical space in your body. Just the fact that you are here necessarily means that there are trillions upon trillions of places you are not. You aren't even aware of what's going on all the time when things do happen right under your nose. After the service ends today, there are going to be a hundred conversations happening at the same time in this vicinity. These people that are talking are all around you, and most likely you will only be able to pay attention to one of those conversations at a time. And if your brain works in overdrive, or if you aren't convicted about eavesdropping into other people's conversations, maybe you will listen to two conversations at the same time. But even in the space that you do encounter, that you do inhabit, surrounding you, you are wrought with limitations. In fact, roughly one-third of your entire physical existence is going to be spent sleeping, so your body is inhabiting physical space, but someone could literally come and put honey all over your face, and you would wake up confused and sticky because you have no idea what's going on. Because even though you physically are in that space, you're not even aware of the space around you. But God is everywhere, and because he is omnipresent and omniscient, he is fully aware of everything that is going on everywhere that he is. He is not only everywhere, he is always every aware. So Johnny Cash is a liar. He has not been everywhere, and neither have you, because we are finite people. Point number two, we are not omnipresent. Point number three, so what? Well, to begin, we should first acknowledge that this is similar to where we landed the plane last week. If you are a sinner who has not yet bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and trusted in him for salvation, you need to know that you are not living in secret. God is not only someone who knows everything you do, he is present to see it all. Proverbs 15, 13 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. The Bible teaches that before we are saved, we are in the category of God's enemies. And typically, what you want to do with your enemy is you want to get as far between, uh, as much space as you can between you, as far away as possible. But there's literally no way to distance yourself from the presence of the Lord. So friend, you cannot run from him. So run to him. 
Just trust in him. Believe that the blood of Jesus was shed to cover your sins, and you will be forgiven. You see, as terrifying as the everywhereness of God is, it's actually a good thing because there's nowhere that God's mercy cannot reach you. You cannot dig yourself into a hole that is so deep that God cannot find you. Perhaps you are like Jonah and you think you've been able to somehow successfully maneuver around him or away from him. But just like Jonah realized from the belly of the fish, you can call out to God from anywhere and at any time because however far you think you've gone, if you turn around, he's right there. God was already way ahead of you. So if you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, stop the futile and and foolish thinking that you can run away and just turn to Jesus Christ, the Savior. Believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins. And Christian, how does the omnipresence of God relate to you specifically? We're going to close out with seven truths that should absolutely cause your heart to delight in Christ. They overlap a little bit, but these seven truths are some of the most precious and delightful promises that we have as Christians. Number one, the manifest presence. Earlier we talked about how God's presence would occasionally manifest in specific locations and in observable ways. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God's manifest presence was limited to very isolated spaces and could only be approached under the most specific of circumstances. For example, he would meet with the high priest once a year in the Holy of Holies in the innermost chamber of the temple. One guy, once a year. That's it. But under the new and better covenant, we have a precious promise that God has made us his temple. He has chosen us for his presence to dwell within us at all times. Don't get used to statements like what we read in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Imagine how this would have landed with the original audience. Paul writes to them, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? That's an, an atomic declaration. Because God has chosen to dwell in you. That means that you can worship him wherever you are. You don't have to travel to a temple. You do not have to come to this building. You can worship God wherever you are because his manifest presence is permanently centered on your location. The presence of God that devout believers longed to experience all throughout the old covenant. The same presence where Moses said, show me your glory. We have that most outrageous honor and privilege. That his manifest presence is living within us at all times. In Colossians 1.27, Paul refers to this concept as Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is in you. His manifest presence is with you. Number two, mission. Unlike earthly matters, God does not send us out to do things on our own. Because God is omnipresent, he is able to go with us. The last word that Jesus spoke before ascending into heaven was what has come to be known as the Great Commission. This is the responsibility of every believer in some form or fashion. This is what God has called you to do. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. But if you stop there, that is a hopeless task. If you stop there, you can't succeed. If you stop there, this monumental requirement that God has said, Go and make disciples of all nations is impossible. How can you even hope to be successful winning one soul to Christ here in Levittown without his help. You can do this because the commissioning of Jesus doesn't stop where I stopped reading. 
He continues and says one more sentence, the last sentence in the book of Matthew. Jesus not only told us to go, not only told us to make disciples, but he added, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We can do what we are called to do because he has promised that he will go with us. We cannot build his church, but he can. And he has promised that he will. We are not alone in our mission. So closely related to this, we have number three, comfort. If you still have your finger in Psalm 139, look back at the text with me. I think that this is the main focus that Davis had in verses 9 through 10. He said, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. David got into some really serious scrapes in his life, some really tough stuff. I mean, I'm not talking about Goliath necessarily. That was like he shows up, God gives him the courage, he goes out and he fights a giant and he wins cuts off his head. From that point on, he's famous. I'm talking about the consistent scrapes, the long running away from Saul and even his own son, Absalom. David had many enemies. David was familiar with the idea of running and hiding from those enemies. For roughly 15 years, he ran away from Saul, hiding in caves and hiding in foreign cities. And when his son Absalom overthrew the kingdom, David hid on the Mount of Olives. But David rightly acknowledges in Psalm 139 that he could grow wings and he could fly out to the middle of the ocean. And even there, God's loving hand of guidance and protection would be with him. Similarly, when Paul was nearing his own death, there was only one thing that brought him comfort. 2 Timothy 4, 16-18 says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. But all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, if you read the entirety of chapter 4, that this is just a small piece of it, you know he says that he's about to die. I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, which is the last part of the offering, which means he's saying, I'm coming to the end. He knows his death is imminent. Even so, he can say that he is strengthened and comforted by God because God stands by him. Paul was given comfort by God because God was with him. And you surely understand this because you have probably gone through difficult trials. And you have known the comfort of somebody who came and just sat down next to you. And just maybe even was quiet with you. Somebody who came and sat beside you, you don't even necessarily have to hear their advice. In fact, sometimes when people come and try to talk to you when you're discouraged or when you're suffering, everything that they say is uncomfortable and unhelpful because they are so awkward and weird about it. But their presence is encouraging. Just being there matters. Christian, the Bible tells us that God is there. He is with you. Listen to how Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 through 17. He says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The comfort that God gives is eternal because God himself is eternal. And his comfort is everywhere because God himself is everywhere. Number three, comfort, and closely related, we come to number four, fearlessness. Psalm 139 verses 11 through 12 says, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, 
Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright, for the darkness is as light with you. The things that should cause us to fear if we are alone, well, they should be terrifying to us. If you are by yourself, if there is no help, we should be fearful. God often commands people in the Bible to be fearless, but I want you to see how God does that. I'm just going to give you a small, and I mean very tiny percentage of a sampling of these instructions that God gives to be fearless, because I want you to see the formula that God puts forward for how we are to be fearless. Genesis 26, 24. And the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not. Why? For I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Why not fear? Because I'm with you. Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. When you go out to war against your enemies, and you see horses and chariots and armies larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. Why not? For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Joshua 1, 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. When I first learned that verse, it was in the year 2000 in Australia from a Korean man, and he taught it to me in the King James Version, which says, whithersoever thou goest. He is with you whithersoever thou goest. First Chronicles 28, verse 20. Then David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God, even my God, is with you. I hope you see the pattern. This is, like I said, just a very small taste of many, many, many more examples. The New Testament, in the New Testament, Jesus reveals how this works to the disciples the night that he was betrayed. In John 14, 26 through 27, he said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He gave them the Holy Spirit of God to be with us so that we would not fear. He gave the Spirit of God to dwell within us so that our fearlessness is something that we can stand in forever. That's the reason we have for peace. That's the reason we, can't, we don't need to be afraid. We have a holy boldness that comes to us when we realize that God is indeed with us. I'm with him. What can you do to me? Number five, joy. Short point, simple point, rich point, powerful point. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life in your presence. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Do you struggle with having joy in the Lord? The good promise that accompanies God's omnipresence, the way that his omnipresence intersects with your life, is that we can experience joy at any and all times because we can experience him at any time and in any place. Point number six, holiness. Think back to when you were a teenager. If you are a teenager, think back to yesterday. Were there ever times when you did things that you knew your parents would not be okay with? Do me a favor. I want you to try to get a real, actual event, something that you actually did when you were that age, and get that in your mind, and I want you to think about it for a moment, something that really happened. When you did that thing, did you think about that thing and say to yourself, 
man, I hope that my parents never find out about this because I would really have to explain myself and I'd really hate to do that. And you begin thinking of ways that you would try to get out of it by conversation, by explanation, by description, by blaming others, by some kind of elimination of guilt on your own part. Simply put, you need to know there's a lot of things that teenagers do because they think that they can explain them away or at least they could deal with the consequences. But rewind your mind back to the beginning of that event once again, same scenario. Would you have done that exact same thing if your father or mother was present with you? Every single time we sin, we are pretending that God is not with us. We are acting as though his presence is somehow distant or distracted from us. There is no place that you can go to sin privately. He is with you. One of the more disturbing ways that Paul describes this in the Bible is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is commanding the people of Corinth to reject godlessness in specific in their culture of sexual ethics. I'm going to give you a relatively long quote, but stick it out here. He said, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, there's a lot of stuff in there. I'm not going to unpack all of it today. Just a brief moment. If you were following Paul's argument here, you would have noticed that if God takes up residency, if he lives within you, wherever you go, he goes. He is on the couch with you when you watch that questionable movie. He is on the computer with you when you are clicking around. He sees and is with you in every single chapter of your life. He is even with you if you walk into a brothel, according to this chapter. Jesus is there. But how disgusting and how disturbing is it to do those things in the presence of a holy God? Paul particularly highlights sexual sin, but the omnipresence of God should cause us to reject all sin at all times and cause us to move in the direction of holiness. The manifest presence of God dwells within you. So, as he says, because you were bought with a price, glorify God in your body. Lastly, last point. The last word of the day is to see that God's affection has been permanently set upon you. Our final point is how the omnipresence of God is displayed in his love. There is nothing anyone could ever do to shake his love or break his love for you, even you. Nobody can remove you from his grip because God is omnipresent. His love is perpetually poured out on you. Even when circumstances are hard, even when enemies arise, even when you don't feel his love in tangible ways, it's there. I'm going to give the final word of today's sermon to Paul and what he had to tell us in Romans chapter 8. This was our New Testament reading for this morning. As I read these words, consider the unstoppable, inescapable, boundless love that God has set upon you through Jesus Christ and see the glorious truth that because God is everywhere, his love can never leave you and he will never forsake you. Paul writes, 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is how the omnipresence of God intersects with you. Let's pray. Our God, we ask that today you would humble us, you would reveal to us even more clearly how small we are. And in seeing that, I pray, Lord, you would show us how big your grace is and how beautiful and wonderful you are, that you who are everywhere have chosen to pour out your love and your affection on us, and that you do so in real time, in real space. We pray, Lord, that if there is anyone here that doesn't know you who has not yet been saved, that you would open their understanding by your grace that they might believe. And I pray, Father God, if there is anyone in this room that is discouraged, that this would lift up their head. If there is any believer in this room who is caught in sin, they have been unwilling to repent and fearful to, to confess, God, I pray that they would hear these words and they would move forward in holiness. We pray, Father God, that there would be immense growth and transformation because of your word today. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray these things. Amen.